If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. The Bio Tapestry ranks as surely one of the most famous pieces of medieval artwork. Yet it's not actually a tapestry, and it probably wasn't made in Bayeux. It tells the story of the Norman Conquest, but misses out some crucial details, including two of the three big battles fought in England in 1066. It features sex and violence, myths and fables, and even has the hand of God. We don't know how it ends but we do know that it's supposed to be coming to the UK on loan from Normandy at some point in the next few years. So now is the time to really get to grips with the tapestry story in our new History Extra podcast series, Unravelling the Biotapestry. Join me, David Musgrove, tapestry expert, Professor Michael Lewis, and a panel of other leading historians, including Michael Wood and Janina Ramirez, for our exclusive five-part series. Available to listen to now at historyextra.com forward slash Tapestry Pod. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The term blitz spirit has been back in the news recently, with comparisons between the coronavirus pandemic and the German bombing raids that Britain endured in the Second World War. But just how accurate is it? Ahead of a new BBC One documentary, Blitz Spirit with Lucy Worsley, our sub-editor, Rhiannon Davies, spoke to the historian and broadcaster Lucy Worsley alongside the historical consultant for the show, Joshua Levine, and its producer, Yasmin Pamor, 
to find out more about the reality of this enigmatic term. Although many British cities were bombed between September 1940 and May 1941, this podcast primarily focuses on what happened in London, following the experiences of six Londoners and their responses to the life-changing threat that faced them. So, to kick things off then, what's the programme about? Well, it's about the nature of this thing that a lot of people hold in their heads that's called Blitz spirit. And what we've tried to do is to uh, bring it to the table and lay it out and show all the different things that these two words can mean, I suppose. Some people will think, yes, I know what blitz spirit is. It it, it got written out of bed to confront the, the rigours of the war. But other people will say, hmm, no, 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 no. Um, I've heard that it's all just a propaganda thing that the government put together and there was something sort of manipulative about the expression. The answer is, a bit of both. And the way that we thought we'd try to examine it is to go back to the testimony of Londoners who were there at the time and sort of lay out this whole range of different reactions, emotional reactions they had to the war. And in our programme, this is this is dramatised and um, delivered through people actually delivering the real words that people wrote and um, collected and archived. So I hope there's I hope it's an answer an answer to the question, what does split spirit mean? It doesn't mean one single thing. And the job of historians really is to ask questions and to to make things more difficult than they seem, I suppose. And if we achieve that, I think that our job will be done. And one of the things that I was wondering about is why is the time now right for a show about Blitz Spirit? What is it about our current situation that means we're ready to see this kind of show? Oh, 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 it's 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 just been um, so interesting to experience the events of the last 12 months unfolding with the coronavirus and thinking about all the parallels. I mean, we, we when we set out to to make this project, we didn't know that the virus was going to happen. And it has really enriched it, I suppose, because it makes you think so many things that are recognisable here from the sense of fear and and horror. I mean, I, I've grown up a privileged Western person. Um, I've talked to my dad, who's 81, about the Blitz, and he can't really remember it, but he does remember the fear. And I think we all now have a sense of what that might mean, don't we? But also, there's the, the, the good sides of people's reaction to the Blitz that have come to the forward, like people volunteering to do things and cooperating and, and helping each other out and being grateful to the people who are putting themselves in harm's way to look out for us. So it seems timely. I know it's a bit of a sort of a, a cliched historian word, but there's something ever so timely about looking at our reaction to a previous national crisis. That's great. Thank you. And as a historian and a broadcaster, why do you enjoy making programmes like this? <laughs> the reason I love making history programmes is because I'm learning so much the whole time and because it's a truly collaborative process. I mean, sometimes people get the wrong idea. They see me up there on the little screen jabbering away and they think, oh my goodness, doesn't she know a lot? Well, I do not know a lot. <laughs> the people in the team know a lot. So that's why we've invited here today Yaz, our producer, and Josh, historical consultant and author of a book called The Secret History of the Blitz, which is kind of where it all began. So Josh has been unpacking the myths of the Blitz for a long time now. And we've all, all three of us been, been working on this project for Ooh, some considerable length of time. <laughs> 
fantastic. So in the programme and in the feature, which Lucy very kindly wrote for us, which is published in the February issue of BBC History magazine, it follows the experiences and stories of six different Londoners and their time in the Blitz. Can you briefly introduce us to these six people? Yes, we picked these six people who had a whole range of different experiences and recorded them. That's the main thing. You get to hear their testimony. So they include a a woman who was an actor before the Blitz and who became an ARP warden. And she was really radicalised by the experience, actually. Her name's Barbara Nixon and she went on to become a politician. We've included uh, an artist slash socialite who lived in Chelsea. She's a very elegant lady. I'm very fond of her. Her name is Frances Faviel. And she volunteered and she became a nurse. And she did the most extraordinary, heroic, courageous things. Um, our third female is called Nina Maisel. She was a working class girl from Romford who became an observer, a reporter for the Mass Observation Project. And what's extraordinary is that her words, her testimony for the East End actually ended up shaping government policy. We've got another ARP warden called Ita Ekpenyan, who was born in Nigeria, and he became, he was a law student, and he became a really beloved ARP warden in Marylebone, which was his patch. It's really interesting to see some of his experience of of racism and how he was accepted actually, during the Blitz. And we meet a character called Robert Baltrop, who was a porter at Sainsbury's, who actually did the most fantastic account of the first planes coming in, the first proper raid on the 7th of September 1940. His priority that night was to go on his date. (laughs) And our, our final character is Frank Hurd, a fireman. And I'm saying it like that because Frank worked tirelessly throughout the Blitz and finally gave his life helping to fight fires during the night of the so-called Second Great Fire of London, right at the end of December in 1940. Something that I found really interesting in the show is you don't just look at the Blitz, you look at the year before and how the mood in the country seems to change. So at first, everyone seems very anxious. There's cases of people killing their pets or panic buying, which the latter sounds quite familiar to us today. Uh, But then the mood shifts into apathy and there's this idea of the phony war. Can you tell us a bit about this transition and what ramifications it had? Yeah, um, I think that's very, very uh, interesting observation. And it's one thing that's so interesting about this programme I mean, you know, it, it, the program is about people, about human beings, uh, and about how human beings react to a particular time and a very extreme time. And so uh, that's why it's so relevant to today, because we are the, essentially the same people. You know, our expectations change um, uh, and, and, and certain things change, but essentially, as people, we don't. So these people, you know, they, the, the war started... And there was a certain amount of panic at the beginning of the war. So panic, as you say, about pets. You know, millions of pets were put down at the beginning of the war. It's a a horrible story. Um, People started hoarding um, food uh, at the beginning of the war because they were nervous about what was to come. And then this period known as, people call it the phony war, Sitzkrieg, all these different names for it, where essentially nothing happened. People were waiting for the action. People were waiting to be bombed. You know, the idea was people before the war thought that, you know, the minute war started, German bombers would blacken the sky and and Britain, the the cities essentially, would be incinerated. People really expected that. Um, 
didn't happen. And so then people started to move, become a little bit more complacent. So at the beginning, everybody carried their, uh, their gas mask around in their gas mask box, you know, religiously thinking that there was going to be a gas attack. Then when it didn't happen, it didn't happen, it didn't happen. They stopped carrying them around till by sort of March, April, virtually nobody was carrying their gas masks around. And what you see there is human nature at play, that people behave then, you know, in not dissimilar ways. I don't want to over-egg the similarities between then and now. You know, they're very different times. But, you know, there are similarities that, you know, people are very fearful uh, at first. And then once you get, they get used to it and uh, the, the, their attitudes change, then, of course, you know, the blitz started in September. That's when the bombing actually in September 1940 actually did start. And that's when people had to face this new reality, what really was happening in their communities. And so partly it was a matter of bombs coming down, but so much of the, the story really is about people's relationships with each other, people's relationship with the government, how the government was treating people, how people looked to each other at the time. And, and that's where this idea of Blitz Spirit is so important. Um, and, and, and what this program does so brilliantly is to get under the skin of it and look at the reality. You know, it's some people, you know, some people, even today, when they say, you know, Blitz Spirit, yes, absolutely, everyone clung together and worked together and helped each other. And some people, you know, their identity depends on saying that it didn't exist at all. There was no such thing as Blitz Spirit. And, you know, as, as, as Lucy has said, of course, the, the, the truth is much more subtle, much more nuanced, much more interesting. You know, it was an incredibly intense period where the temperature of the country rose um, and people went to extremes in all kinds of different ways. And, and, and part of that was people coming together because... They shared the same dangers. They were eating the same foods. They were dressing in the same clothes. They were, you know, uh, um, evacuated into each other's houses. So part of it was a genuine coming together. And then, of course, the intensity, the high temperature also meant people did all sorts of things they'd never done before. And that meant crime. It meant sex. It meant all kinds of rule breaking that people perhaps wouldn't have anticipated doing before because they didn't think of themselves as rule breakers. So it was a time that changed the nation and changed people's relationships with each other and people's attitudes. A really, really interesting time. And that, I think, is what this programme reflects really well. Good. I just had a little bit of um, testimony from from Barbara Nixon, actually, who who captures the transition that Rhiannon was talking about from the phony war, this feeling of slight relaxation, we've been here before, we haven't used our gas masks, to the actual, you know, the actual bombing. And that night, the night of the first proper raid on London, Barbara Nixon said, that day London changed like a drunk man sobering up when he receives tragic news. I think that was that's a good way of capturing that shift in public opinion from phony to now we're in for it. Definitely. I, I'm really glad you brought that up as well, Lucy, because it nicely links to my next question, which is about the experience of these six people on the first night of the the first proper raid on London. I was wondering if someone could give us a brief overview of the different experiences that these people had. So on, on, on this first night, the 7th of September, there was 
two raids, really. The first raid was um, planes coming up the Thames and bombing the docks. And you, and then they went home again. And a lot of people thought, oh, okay, that was bad, but that was a raid. We've experienced it. But what they didn't realise is that they were only setting fires. That was the advance party setting fires to guide in a much bigger raid later on. So uh, Barbara Nixon, who was finally on duty at last as an ARP warden, for real, she she experienced this first raid. Her job was to um, to help people, to make sure that they were taking shelter, that sort of thing. And then after the first raid, she went out for dinner in Soho because she, like so many other people, didn't realise that that was just you know that was just the starter. There was a main course to come, which is which is horrific. And um, Robert the Robert the porter at Sainsbury's. Oh, I I hinted at this earlier. He was on duty as a fire watcher, so he got this magnificent sight of the planes coming up the coming up the Thames. Let me read to you what he actually recorded because it's so it's so epic and and memorable. He said, "I had the perfect view. They were heading straight for London. It was going to be the docks that were going to get it. I began to hear thumps, and those were bombs falling and clouds of smoke." were rising up until you couldn't see anything but a huge bank of smoke and still they were coming. But Robert, <laughs> I don't want to say that I know people like Robert, but <laughs> I do know people like Robert. And he thought, I know what my priorities are. They are to go out tonight and to see my girlfriend. And he says, it sounds a bit daft, but we both thought it was a bit romantic meeting in an air raid. We could smell the smoke and we could hear the raid. And I think we can see that during coronavirus days, can't we? Some people are thinking it's so important that we cling on to something of our normal lives. So I'm not judging him for that. I totally understand it. But his life was going to be utterly upended, as were the lives of everybody living in London. That's definitely the example of Robert going on a date where he paints this very romantic picture and the smoke's billowing around them and they can hear the bombs going off. That one really stuck out in my mind. Um, And I wasn't sure how much his attitude reflected every Londoner. Was he quite rare in having this very romanticised view of it? I think you've got to be so careful about uh, talking about, you know, one person's view reflecting everybody or even reflecting too many people. Because everybody, just like now, everybody, people were individuals. So, you know, he saw it as romantic. I found uh, an account from somebody else, a writer called Peter Quinnell, who actually found it a turn-on. You know, he he actually liked to go further than just romance during the Blitz because he, he, he found it a really sort of erotic experience. Um, Quentin Crisp talked about London becoming a huge double bed during the Blitz. Um, uh, You wouldn't say those are typical remarks or typical attitudes, but the fact is that people found their own Blitz uh, in all sorts of different ways. Um, And once you start going into the archives and find, that's why it's great to find these, you know, different people with different attitudes, doing different kinds of jobs from different sectors of society, because everybody viewed it differently and it's why you had some people really genuinely coming together that my favorite story of the whole blitz is a very small one but I, I met this woman who was very old in her 90s when I met her but she told me about being on a, a, a bus um, London bus during the blitz and she was at the back uh, on the top deck and you could smoke in those days so she was smoking away and there was just one other person up there at the front a man and they heard a stick of bombs coming down 
And while the bombs were coming down, the driver obviously heard it because he veered off the path. And while this was happening, the man, who was a total stranger to her, got up, walked to the back, sat next to her, held her hand, and then the bombs landed safely, exploded elsewhere. Driver got back on the route, and the man just got up without even looking back and sat back at the front again. So that is really organic blitz spirit, people genuinely coming together, being brought together by the danger. Um, and so when people, as they have over the years, have claimed there's no such thing, there was, there really was, uh, and people did come together and share so much, but then there was also um, someone I came across who had a badge that said, I'm not interested in your bomb. So not everybody felt that way. People were then, as now, different, and you know I think our job is to look at these differences and to remember them. And that's what this tells us about people. And I suppose just one thing to add, um, we obviously read, I think, up to about 60 different testimonies in the end to try and whittle down which stories we wanted to tell. And people genuinely didn't know if they were going to survive the bombings. And so it pushed people to go for what they really wanted. And so from in some of the accounts that we came across, the Blitz in some way gave them the freedom to explore their sexuality. That's right. And I think explore, it gave them freedom to explore sexuality and all kinds of different aspects of themselves that they wouldn't have had the chance to do if they didn't feel that the temperature had raised and their lives were in danger and society was in danger. It's quite interesting to think about the trajectory that the, the, the war provided for Nina Maisel, for example, who, who grew up in a very working class community. And yet she had this opportunity that she took to become a writer. And her parents were a bit suspicious about this. You're going to be hanging out with these free-thinking bohemian people. But you, you can see Nina finding a way in which her amazing talent could blossom. Although for her, it wasn't an entirely positive experience, not least because she was reporting on terrible things. But she came to believe that her work as a reporter for mass observation had been abused, actually, by the Ministry of Information and the government, who were taking her testimony and then sort of using it to make points that she didn't believe in herself. So eventually she ended up walking out of her job. But for her, that was the beginning of a lifetime as a free spirit. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You feel like such a fool standing here in a crater with a mug of tea until someone says, it's washed away the blood and the dust from my mouth and you know that you've done something really useful. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. 
that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So looking at that idea of Nina, who wrote for Mass Observation, another thing that really strikes me or would strike anyone when they see the programme is the influence that the government had on shaping the narrative of the Blitz. There's a lot more censorship than there's been before. Uh, The Ministry of Information comes into effect. And to me, at least, it seemed like the government was very consciously crafting this idea of Blitz spirit to project out to the world and also to the people of Britain. Can you tell us a bit more about censorship, how it worked, why they felt it was necessary? If you don't believe in Blitz spirit, right, then the origin myth of your point of view is probably going to be this famous propaganda film that was made called London Can Take It that was actually created for America. It was supposed to bring America into the war. It was shown in Britain as well. And that's just one sort of really um, obvious way in which it was happening. But you can see that the government just needed people to act within the spirit of this new thing called civil defence. They had to, from the point of view of survival and public safety, get people to act in a certain way. So that's why they started producing early on all of these air raid precaution manuals and lists of rules and propaganda posters that to us do appear to become quite Orwellian. And that's <laughs> that impression is heightened by the fact that the Ministry of Information was its itself in Senate House in Bloomsbury in central London, which looks like it's from some sort of dystopian totalitarian state just because of the <laughs> the amazing um, visual impact the architecture of the place has. And inside, um, uh, inside Senate House, there are these teams of people called the Scrutineers, which is a rather splendid sounding job title, who scrutinise the newspapers to see if anyone had broken the rules about not reporting bomb damage because that might give too much enemy um, information, Uh, not including too many photos of damaged buildings because that might reveal where the bombs had fallen, that sort of thing, and then sending out their famous posters. And we do briefly address the most famous poster of all, which is called Keep Calm and Carry On, which was designed and got ready and then actually they decided not to send it out because their their market research proved that that was a step too far. And people were saying, this is patronising. So they didn't. Well, mm, we became confused about this, yes, didn't they? They did actually send some out from the depot, but we don't believe that it was released in the millions as had originally been the intention. And most of the posters were pulped, apart from just one, which survived to become the sort of home interior decorating cliche image that it has become now. I think the Ministry of Information is a bit of a red herring in some ways because it wasn't treated seriously by people at all. It was it was 
you know, anybody who became the head of the Ministry of Information was considered a sort of graveyard position. Um, and it was, people were way ahead of it. Uh, and it was absolutely trying to, it was trying to shape, you know, the public attitudes, but it was failing. Um, see, I, I'm pretty much of the view, having spent a lot of time looking at it, that Blitz Spirit itself was an organic thing that came from the people, um, you know, in, in, in a real sense. The Ministry of Information was trying to impose something on top of that, which it basically failed to do. And you can see that absolutely. Lucy talks about the, you know, the, those famous posters and the fact that uh, the, the, the government soon realised that people weren't going to go for it. You know, these posters were telling them, um, you know, your, was it your... Your sacrifice, your courage will lead to our victory. And they weren't going to be patronised like that. They weren't going to be told, you know, we're going to do all the work and and, and everybody, you and everybody else is going to take you know, get the benefit of it. People were much sharper than that. And again, you know, in, in the newspapers at the beginning, last night there was a bomb in a built-up area. You know, that, that's about as far as they were willing to go. And soon it became, you know, the people just, well, what is going on? This is ludicrous. We can see it. You know, we know what's happening. So don't treat us like we're children. And the government had to backtrack. The government had to treat people as though they were adults. And you see it time and time again. You see it in the, 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 the underground. You know, the, the government didn't want people to shelter in the underground because they wanted to keep the underground running. Also, because amazingly, they were scared that there would be a sort of underground troglodyte community of moles would develop, people whose eyes would heal over and they would be all sort of anti-establishment and would never come up again. And the people just decided, no, we're going to shelter down there. And they forced themselves down there, first of all, by just buying tickets and, you know, staying down, and then by actually forcing their way down in various places. Um, and it was a fait accompli. And the government, in so many different ways, had to fall in line. Trekking was another one. In towns like Southampton, different places, people would just leave. They do their work in the day, they work in the factories, and then they'd go out of the city at night and sleep basically under hedges. Um, and the government was very against this. You know, this is not what we have in mind. We've got to stop them doing it. In the end, people did what people wanted to do, what was right for them. And the government ultimately had to fall in line. And the government ended up, I mean, how you know, workers, people working in factories, suddenly were much more important than they'd ever been before. The government had to treat them better. You know, all kinds of um, um, trade union legislation was brought in at this time. Wages went up. Suddenly, people had a real stake, a real importance in society, which the government acknowledged. Mm, so that's a good point. Yeah. You know, this was a period. I think it's. You know, the government may have wanted to control things in a very strict way, but in the end, they had to end up having a dialogue with the people that they probably never wanted to have before, but now are forced to have. Mm, mm. When you're mentioning the tube stations there, um, of course, one of the one of the most cliched but most powerful Blitz spirit images is people having sing-alongs in tube stations. And I remember as a young person going to the Imperial War Museum, where they used to have a very famous exhibit that I'm sure a lot of people will remember visiting, where you would sit in um, a shelter and it was all dark and the yeah <laughs> Josh is acting it out. You would feel a bomb drop and then you would hear a sing-along starting up and people sort of joyfully resisting the evil of the hour by raising their spirits through song. But learning about some of the actual conditions in these shelters, in tubes and in other 
other places like the vast railway warehouse called the Tilbury Shelter in Stepney, I just, I've been traumatised by it. Um, Really, really horrible, terrible conditions. Until, actually, um, people like shelter community leaders began to make things better. They used to, some people were organising whip rounds and sort of community-led arrangements were were more effective than, than anything official going on. So one department that we focus on quite a lot in the film is the home intelligence department. And this, I suppose, is so crucial to not only our film, but also the understanding of this period in history, because it was the first time the government really listened to what people on the street thought. And for us was just an amazing research resource because um, the there's actually an MOI digital website and they've digitised every single report that's been done by the Home Intelligence Division. So it means you have a search word and you, you put it into the into the website and it comes up with report after report about what the people on the street actually felt about a certain attack or the way the government were responding or the propaganda that was released. And it's that primary resource, which was brilliant for us because it meant that we didn't just have to rely on historians and authors before us who have written books on the Blitz. We could say we had a particular niche point that we wanted to see do people have an opinion on this? Um, And we could easily find it. And it was fascinating, the stories that we uncovered by using these resources that I've never worked on a programme before that has, you know, kind of daily reports on what the people living across the country were feeling. Yes, what are your other favourite digitised primary resources so people listening to this can go off and do their own research? Um, So we used a number of different archives. Um, We used the Imperial War Museum, as you can imagine, is brilliant. And their online catalogue is fantastic because they even have loads of audio recordings that any member of the public can listen to. You don't have to kind of book in and go to the archives themselves. Um, Museum of London, the National Archives, the Westminster Archives, the Keep in Sussex. I mean, the list goes on. I've probably forgotten some. Um, but, you know, it really secured this belief that we we kind of all know that, you know, our museums and our archives are full of stories, but anyone can go and listen to them. You don't need to have, I mean, you might need to get a membership, but it's often, you know, it's always free. Um, and there are just hundreds of thousands of stories available to us. Explain um, a bit more about the Keep, because I did particularly enjoy going there. Yeah. So the Keep's brilliant. Um, It's down in Sussex and um, they look after all the Mass Observation Archive. And so Mass Observation is a a project that's still going on today. Um, And actually, when we went down there to do some filming, we got carried away because the topics that they cover are so fascinating. And you have to keep remembering that you're there to film something on the Blitz, but actually you get caught up because you see that they've done a report in the 80s about people's dreams. Um, But they've just become such a great resource for us um, and I just wanted to kind of yeah really articulate the fact that they're just available for anyone to go and read. It was a special moment to actually pick up Nina Maisel's notebook and to imagine her writing in it in her bedroom. <laughs> yeah I mean that's what was absolutely fascinating I suppose yeah so many of the archives are often typed up and so you feel like there's one separation away from the person but we came across Nina's and it's a you know a traditional reporter's spined notebook and 
her handwriting and it says you know September 1939 war has been declared and it it's it's fascinating you feel you feel like you're there with her reading her words in her own handwriting I think it's really interesting what you say as well that you know this is a period it's a really unusual period to be able to research this because you've got the words you know as Yaz says you've got the voices of the people really coming through in a way that you know you haven't had before so you've got mass observation which started by this guy Tom Harrison who you you know, originally was a bird watcher and he kind of brought this to watching people you know anthropology so he sent partly had people writing diaries so so writing down their their thoughts that they weren't sharing with anybody else but they were telling posterity but they also had they sent people observers into into shelters into all kinds of different places to watch what was going on so these people would you know try and be sort of surreptitiously sort of hiding away in the corner watching what people were really getting up to, writing reports and sending it back. And at the same time, you know, you had the government kind of doing its own branch of the same thing, watching and getting people, you know, getting interviews with people. So, the, so you know, the, the government, if you go to the National Archives, you hear you can get these credible reports of, for example, in relation to racism, you know, what people were saying in relation to, to, to black people, to anti-Semitism. And it's really shocking when you read it now um, and you find out, you know, this was a war supposedly against, you know, the Nazis, against the, 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 the excesses of Nazism. And you get some of the attitudes that were happening in Britain at the time, um, which are not a million miles away. And, and so, um, you know, we have this across the board. We have this really, really surprising and wonderful um, set of resources, which, uh, you know, as, as yeah says, people can themselves just go and look at. How did you go about tracking down the descendants and getting them to tell you their stories? I probably shouldn't say this, but it was actually a lot more straightforward (laughs) than it can sometimes be. Sometimes you can just spend days. I mean, luckily, um, two of the stories, so for the case of um, Francis and Robert, they um, have both published books. So, you know, you just track down their publisher and write a very polite email and letter and ask if they wouldn't mind passing it on to any relatives that they know of. And luckily in that case, they both did. And they both got back in touch. Um, and then in terms of um, Ita and Nina, that both of their stories um Eater is at the uh, Westminster Archives and Nina's is at um, the Keep and they still have quite good relationships with their respective daughters. So um, we were able to get in touch with Oku Ekpenyon, Eater's daughter, and Sally Hibbin, who was Nina's daughter. Um, and you know, they have just been fantastic to talk to for the, you know, we've been largely working on this for about a year now, if if not more. Um, and we were in touch with them very early on because not only do you need their permission, in fairness, to, you know, say their parents' words, but it's so important to have them involved and, and um, you know, make sure that actually you include every bit of testimony that actually exists. And that was certainly the case with, um, with Nina Maisel's story, you know, we discovered more after talking to her daughter Sally who could point us in different directions um as to where we might be able to get more words that Nina will have written so um yeah they were an amazing asset to the program and it was great to have them involved the whole way along we haven't actually sent it to them yet so I'm very excited for them to see it what's lovely about meeting the children of some of our characters at the end of the program is that you know that 
it turned out all right. Life went on. They survived. <laughs> they did get to the end of it. And that's something that we all need to hear at the moment, isn't it? I just wanted to touch back on something that you mentioned in your earlier answer, Josh, um, to do with this idea of race and something that came across quite clearly in the programme is that the Blitz exacerbated a lot of divisions that were already in society, particularly to do with race and class. Can you tell us a bit more about this? I think at, at, at the time of the Blitz, you had more people from different backgrounds, different races, different countries coming into Britain. Um, it was you know, much more homogenous before the war. Then during the war, you had quite a lot of you know, black people coming from um, the, the Commonwealth. You had uh, soldiers coming from um, initially Canada. Um, you had people from Nazi-occupied Europe, refugees coming. Um, you know, to the point that there were there were problems in 1940 in Chiswick in London because lots of Belgians suddenly moved into Chiswick and were being blamed for a spate of burglaries that were taking place. You had all these sort of strange um, events taking place because of people coming in. Um, and I so I think in that sense, there was a certain sort of exacerbation um, of um, attitudes that, that, that were already there. And I think, you know, the, 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 there's a character... Um, Ita Ekpenyon, um, uh, who was was an air raid warden, uh, a black man from Nigeria, um, who, you know, it's interesting. He, he he's such an interesting character because he was a, a complete novelty, but he managed to use some prejudice against him for his own benefit. He was considered a kind of a lucky charm. Um, people had this a strange view that somehow, you know, because he was different, because he was black, he was he was a lucky charm. And he was able to use that to keep order in the shelters and to get people to do what he wanted them to do. So there absolutely was, I think, it, it is true to say, there was a sort of rise in racist attitudes, in, 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 in fear of the other. Bear in mind also, you know, there was fear of spies at this time. So any kind of outsiders who came in, you know, were considered maybe untrustworthy because they might be working for the, for the other side. So there was a sort of fear of the other. Um, but at the same time, somebody like Ekpenyon was able to turn it to his own benefit. So, you know, there are always more than one side to, to the story. On the flip side, in the programme, there are a lot of instances of people banding together and working alongside each other to try and tackle the problems that they're encountering. Can you give us some examples mm, of this? Mm. Another of the testimonies that we've used were Frances Favio's memoirs. Now, she's clearly literate. She's um, upper middle class, would you say, Yaz? Um, she's, somebody, she's the sort of person who felt no self-consciousness about publishing her memoirs, which she does. <laughs> um, but you... Uh, I've just been really um, touched by this sort of spiritual journey that she went on within them as war progressed. And there's less sort of um, cocktails and self-satisfaction, if I can put it that way, as she gets to grips with being a nurse. And one of the extraordinary things that she records, and it's it's dramatised in our, our programme, is her coming home from duty one night and being called to a pile of smouldering rubble by two wardens. And they said, nurse, nurse, we need you. There's, there's someone down this hole. And the hole, if I understand it, was so sort of wobbly that as she was lowered down into it, they said, look, look, there's a problem here. If your dress catches on the edges, the whole thing might collapse. So 
She took her dress off. She took off her dress, and then these two wardens held her by the ankles, and she was sent down with, um, oh, what's that drug that you put onto a cloth? Chloroform. That's right. She was sent down to treat this terribly injured person with the chloroform, and then they pulled her out again by the ankles. And then she says she was sick, and then she went home. And that's what people did. And it's, it's this idea of volunteerism. She'd been a gymnast before the war, so she thought, oh, that's a skill I can sort of use to be dangled into the... And it's, it's you, you, you get this sense, I don't know if, if, if um, Lucien Yaz agree, but there's this idea that people... Volunteerism became a, a big... The word became common, and it became a big thing that, you know, what can I do? How can I help? And in every kind of way imaginable, people were using skills that they didn't even know they had to... To, to help the war effort. And partly this was out of the goodness of the heart, partly it was peer pressure, partly it was, you know, they didn't want to be seen to not be helping. Not but, be doing it, yeah. but at the same time, people were doing stuff. And, and, and a third of the civilian volunteers were women as well, which shows them sort of moving into the public realm a little bit more. Obviously, this had happened in World War One as well. One story that sticks in my mind is of a woman who was distributing tea after the Coventry bombing in November 1940. And she says, this is accounted on the Imperial War Museum website, she says, um, you feel like such a fool standing here in a crater with a mug of tea until someone says, it's washed away the blood and the dust from my mouth and you know that you've done something really useful. And she was obviously working with the Women's Voluntary Service who were, you know, huge across the country with distributing blankets and clothes and tea and food. And it's those small everyday gestures that, you know, okay, she's not being lowered down into a hole or doing anything kind of monumentous. She's just giving someone a cup of tea. But to them, it's kind of, it, it makes the day bearable. The Citizens Advice Bureau, you know, it actually started before the war in 38, but became huge at this time. You know, so many volunteers, the CAB, who were helping people to get back on their feet. Because there was, um, another thing is there was an enormous amount of homelessness. People had been expecting during the Blitz lots and lots of death. That had been the government anticipation that people would die. And of course, people did die. But what they hadn't anticipated was the huge numbers of people who would be bombed out of their houses um, live but would have absolutely nowhere to go no access to money no access to clothes no access to anything at all and this was a real crisis in particularly in london in october 1940 and again the government had to really think on its feet and they you know appointed uh, a man called henry willing to to organize everything because up till then you know at the very beginning the rest centers were completely overwhelmed people didn't have any money people and people were being treated like you know, um, beggars for Victorian beggars for gin. You know, the poor laws came into into play, and they needed to do something to change this completely. So they brought in this guy, who brought in social workers, who brought in you know one stop shops where everybody could go to get everything they needed. You know, houses were immediately started to be patched up. Places became available for people to stay. You had the precursor of the welfare state put into practice in October, November 1940 in London. Josh, how quickly do you think that the shift happened between this kind of um, lady bountiful, let's dispense, dispense charity to these poor, poor people attitude to, to something more useful, which is these people are not made homeless through their own fecklessness. 
it's something that we need to deal with. How how quickly did that happen, do you I think? I think the attitude changed very fast because I think the authorities realised we can't deal with this. We are not Lady Bountiful here. We can't, you know, there's people, we need these people. These are the people who are fighting for us, who are firewatching, who are doing everything for us, working in the factories, everything. And they're also suffering just the same as we all are. We have to treat them as adults. And I think that attitude started very quickly because, well, I mean, a really weird thing, even very shortly afterwards, it still looked as though Britain was going to lose the war, but already people started talking about the world that would be after the war, the changes that we're going to bring about after the war. They started talking about these things practically, even when it looked like the war was going to be lost. And I think that reflects a change in attitude from the authorities that, you know, we, 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 we have to accept that these people are important to us. We owe them a duty. We have to treat them better than we have done before. And we even now, at this early stage, have to start thinking about what we will give them when, when this war is over. Um, and you see that in the, in the government papers. They're starting in 1941 to think about the world beyond. And I found this incredibly moving. You talk about um, Coventry as this incredibly moving radio programme that was made in, I think it was 1941, where they went around, they did these vox pops with people who'd been bombed out of their houses. Um, and they asked them, you know, what, 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 do you, what do you want from your houses? You know, what do you want from Coventry when it's rebuilt? And it's so touching. These people were saying, you know, I, I want a house that's easier to clean. Um, uh, you know, I'd like a, a refrigerator so I can keep my food cold. Um, I'd, I'd like um, uh, places to go and shop where I don't have to go to lots of different shops where I can get everything in one. You know, they were at a point when Britain was still likely to lose the war, thinking ahead to how they wanted to live in some sort of post-war world. And this is all part of that shifting change, shifting from the, from the authorities. We're going to have to give more to people and shifting from the people. Actually, we want a better world to live in. That was Lucy Worsley, Joshua Levine and Yasmin Permel. You can read Lucy's feature on the Blitz Spirit in the February issue of BBC History magazine. And the documentary Blitz Spirit with Lucy Worsley is airing on BBC One later this month. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow with an episode on the Victorian poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning. (laughs) 